You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our home offices in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So one of the things I love about my job is occasionally hearing the story of why an individual chose to go into the practice of law. Maybe it was because something that they or a family member experienced that was so profound that they knew in that moment that seeking justice would be their life's calling. These stories are always inspiring, and they serve as a reminder that the law is a noble profession. Through my work with the Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers Committee, I've learned that some of the happiest lawyers are the ones who feel connected to a higher purpose because doing good feels good. That committee started, though, because of the troubling statistics that brought to light the high levels of stress, anxiety, substance abuse, and depression that plague the legal profession. Today is an important episode because in many ways, it's the missing piece for a lot of the work we've been doing at the bar to help our lawyers improve their mental health and wellness. Helping others gives a lawyer's work meaning, but carrying the weight of their client's stress and trauma can also exact a heavy toll on a lawyer's well-being. So joining us today to discuss the signs, symptoms, and causes of what is sometimes called vicarious or secondary trauma is Dr. Erica Tolberg. Dr. Tolberg is an assistant professor at NYU Langone Health's Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, where her work focuses on the trauma-related needs of children that have experienced maltreatment and the related needs of their parents and the caretakers, staff, and systems that serve them. She is currently serving as the Associate Director of NYU's NCTSN, Center for Child Welfare Practice Innovation, which is developing and implementing trauma-informed child welfare practices in partnership with child welfare providers around the country. Between 2012 and 2018, she was the principal investigator on an Administration for Children, Youth, and Families-funded project focused on implementing trauma-informed screening and interventions in New York City-based treatment foster care programs. Prior to joining the faculty at NYU, Dr. Tolberg worked for the Administration for Children's Services, New York City's public child welfare agency, where she led a department that planned, implemented, and oversaw program and policy development in the areas of domestic violence, health, mental health, and substance abuse, and helped launch several initiatives focused on secondary trauma experienced by child welfare staff. Dr. Tolberg earned her PhD at the City University of New York School of Public Health, her MPH at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, her MPA at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and her BA at Columbia College. She is also a foster and adoptive parent. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tolberg. Thank you so much, Christine and Carla. Can you start by giving our listeners um, the definition of secondary trauma if they've never heard of that? Uh, definitely. Um, but if it's okay, I'd like to take a step back, actually, and first define trauma. Um, I think that's a term that's used in general conversation oftentimes, but sometimes people aren't familiar with kind of the clinical definition of it. Um, and there are many different definitions. If you, um, you know, Google different organizations kind of come out with their own variations on the theme. But at the core of, I would say, most definitions is that it includes a reaction to a frightening event that put one's life or health or the life or health of someone um, close to that person at risk and in the moment overwhelms that person's ability to cope um, kind of with the event. Um, and we, we, particularly in the work that I do, we include that kind of life or health of someone else because uh, particularly with children, they may not be the person at risk, but if they see something happen to their parents, for example, um, even if they are physically safe, if something uh, life-threatening happens to their parents, or even if they just perceive it as being life-threatening, 
uh, that can be traumatic for them. Um, I think it's important to remember that it is very much a subjective experience, right? So two different people can experience the exact same event and one person can experience it as, as a traumatic event and the other person not. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why people might have different reactions to event an event like that, including their personal history, um, their age, their kind of developmental stage, their coping resources, et cetera. We could talk more about that. And so secondary trauma is essentially kind of secondhand exposure to another person's trauma story. And certainly in the legal field, in my field, in child welfare, we hear all the time about the terrible things that people have gone through in their lives. And so that kind of secondhand exposure to other people's traumatic experiences um, has been shown in the research in, in many cases to have as profound an effect on somebody as if you were experiencing it personally. I use the term secondary trauma as kind of an umbrella term. There is a lot of different terminology out there. And I would say it's, it, I think it can be confusing for people because they're, they're all, again, kind of variations on a theme. You mentioned vicarious trauma. Uh, that kind of refers to the longer term kind of cumulative effect of secondary exposure to trauma. And it really looks at kind of the, the impact on one's functioning, one's worldview, particularly whether they see the world as a safe place or not. And vicarious trauma can has been found to persist even once somebody is no longer being exposed to those traumatic stories, right? So if, say, they leave their job and they go do something else, they may still be experiencing those after effects. There's also something called secondary traumatic stress, which is almost a, kind of a, a cousin to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is when someone has really traumatic stress symptoms, traumatic stress reactions specifically linked with, you know, a particular event. Um, and in this case, it would be not the event that they experienced personally, but a particular story. Um, so they may have nightmares, flashbacks, you know, all the things that someone um, who would experience it firsthand might, exp might have. And then there's also a term, again, a little bit confusing called compassion fatigue. Some people define, use compassion fatigue almost as a synonym for secondary traumatic stress. In other cases, compassion fatigue I've seen as being kind of a combination of secondary traumatic stress and burnout. Burnout is really more just the general emotional exhaustion that can happen with a job that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with trauma, right? You can work in a factory and be burned out, even if there's no traumatic content there. Um, we know that people in, in certainly, again, in the legal profession, in my field, in the child welfare field, they do experience burnout and traumatic Absolutely. exposure. So there is that combination, which is tricky. And then I also always kind of fold into the mix just to kind of add to the potential confusion, um, something that we call a traumatogenic environment. So this is when someone works in a setting that's kind of where trauma is really ubiquitous in that setting. Everybody is hearing traumatic stories. Um, the work is kind of inherently traumatic. And the whole organization almost can act like a traumatized person. So can be kind of hypervigilant, can be um, avoidance, you know, all the things. And we can get into some of the symptoms in a minute. So what's important about a tra uh, traumatogenic environment is that an individual person doesn't necessarily have to have had trauma exposure as part of their job, like a security guard or a receptionist or, a, you know, I don't know, an aide of some sort. They aren't necessarily the people like reading the stories or hearing, you know, interviewing clients or whatever it is. But if they are working with a bunch of people who do do that and who are who are therefore symptomatic and that it's kind of affecting the organization's functioning, they can be, it's almost like tertiary <laughs> traumatic stress, right? They can be affected right. as well. Thank you for that. And, and I think for our listeners, the point is that as a lawyer or a legal professional, you could potentially be uh, fallen in, in under any one of those definitions. I mean, or, or all of them, unfortunately, because uh, as we mentioned before, lawyers, judges, children's advocates, uh, and, and a lot of people that work in the juvenile justice, criminal justice, and family law 
area, uh, you know, they're exposed to victim stories and and horrific uh, children's, you know, child abuse stories and uh, things like that. So what makes, and this is a basic question, but again, with regards to lawyers, judges, and child advocates and whatnot, what makes these types of roles particularly vulnerable to secondary trauma and or any of the other branches of Yeah, especially since your work focuses on the trauma of children. Children. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I'll note before answering that question is, is kind of just to echo what you said is that people may be experiencing different aspects of what I just described. From my perspective, those distinctions don't really matter, um, which is, again, why I use this kind of umbrella term, because it's like, if you're being impacted, you're being impacted. And whether it's secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma, like for for practical purposes, those distinctions are, are not as important. The really important thing is awareness around these issues and kind of awareness of your vulnerabilities and then things, <clears throat> excuse me, that you can do for yourself and potentially for people that you work with or work for you. In terms of the uh, what makes you know people in these professions particularly vulnerable, um, I think there are a few things. For sure, if you are working with, I, I think there is research that shows that people who are working with with clients who are I don't know, super vulnerable. I don't know if that's a term, but, you know, working with children, working with people who are, who are kind of not being protected um, or who are vulnerable in other ways in society, that in a sense, the, the emotional content of that work is just heightened. And I think we all know that just as kind of people, um, you know, putting aside the research, but that, you know, you, you just as human beings, we respond to um, to children and people who are in a sense not in the in the position to protect themselves, like that has kind of emo- can have more emotional resonance for us. I think another issue is the is the the kind of volume, right? If you're working, so say you're a doctor and you do have you know uh, some patients who have terrible illnesses and end up you know, being debilitated or, or even dying from them, but you also have people who get better. Right. And so there's this kind of mix where there's a little bit of a balance um, and you're the kind of the, the assault on you in terms of the, the kind of constancy of the trauma exposure is less. I think in, in these kinds of jobs, like there's not much relief. I I would imagine if you talk to, you know, a, a family court judge or a juvenile uh, court judge, like there aren't many happy stories that they're hearing. People don't go to court because they're happy and everything's fine, right? They're going to court because there's something wrong. Again, whether it's a criminal matter or a family matter or or what, ha- you know, immigration matter, like whatever it is, people, you're intersecting people with people at a very, very difficult point in their lives. And so I would imagine, again, I'm not I don't work in the legal field, but I've had a lot of intersection with legal folks over the years and know that, you know, again, just the the kind of um, drumbeat of, of difficult stories is over and over. I certainly also know, I mean, again, this is more from my experience in child welfare, speaking to with lawyers um, who represent when I worked for the city would represent the city in court on child maltreatment cases you know, these are pe- typically people who carried like a hundred cases or something. I mean, it just the volume was incredible, and I think again the kind of the nonstop nature of the work, right? It's it's you go from thing to thing to thing. There's, I think there's other challenges in the child welfare side, but you get supervision, right? You're hopefully being supervised by someone who has clinical experience who helps you um, kind of debrief on. A difficult situation. My guess is your average lawyer does not have clinical supervision with somebody. Certainly, I would imagine your average judge does not have clinical supervision, right? Like you don't have these resources in the system that are kind of recognizing this aspect of the work and helping people to cope with it. I think you're exactly right. If you're a member of the public and you see a news story about some horrific thing that's happened, it feels very isolated. But if you are a juvenile judge and you walk in 
and you see it day after day after day, it's, I could see where that, you, like you mentioned before, it starts to seem like maybe the world is a very unsafe place for children that's demoralizing. But in discussing this topic, it's precisely why we wanted to bring you on. This has been a topic of my committee because I immediately think of a very young person fresh out of law school, and they're working as a public defender or an assistant state attorney, and day in and day out, they're meeting directly with victims. They have to listen to the horrific details. They may even have to see horrible photographs of things. And they're talking to these people that are living through the worst moments of their lives. What type of training could prepare an attorney or a judge before they step into that role? That's a really good question. Um, And I, I don't know that there's an easy answer to it. I mean, I think when I, again, looking, going a bit back to my work with the city, we Uh, developed an intervention for child protective staff, starting actually with new child protective staff, because the city was having this challenge at the time where folks would get hired, they would get trained up. And then within the first year, about half of the people left. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was both very disruptive in terms of the the day-to-day work, but it was also obviously like a huge financial hit to the agency because it's, it's time consuming and expensive to hire and train people, right? And what we were really seeking to do was to kind of have like a companion, you know, they were getting trained on like the nuts and bolts of the work. What we were trying to do is kind of complement that with preparation for the emotional impact of the work so that those two things would ideally go hand in hand and that they would both become from the start, right, um, within the first month or so that they were in the office, that they would develop skills that would help them, you know, kind of positively manage the the impact of the work. And I think it's important to recognize that it's not about not being exposed to trauma because this just is the nature of the work. And so I, I I don't know of a single person who works in these fields who is not exposed one way or the other. There are people who are naturally very resilient, right, and kind of are able to bounce back very easily. But I think kind of for the rest of us, we need some help. I'm not a trained lawyer. I would, my, but my presumption is that this is not a focus of things in law school, right? Around kind of the emotional side of the work. I mean, I think it would be great. I imagine there are probably resource limitations here, but it would be great if organizations that do, you know, tend to hire those fresh out of law school folks, whether it's, you know, again, kind of legal aid or public defenders, you know, places that are kind of training grounds for lawyers that they have some sort of capacity to, I wouldn't necessarily call it clinical supervision, but to provide some sort of preparation. So especially, I think, so that people understand kind of what's happening to them. What we found when we were doing this work with new CPS staff, and these were folks that had been in the field um, for weeks, maybe a month or two, that already they were having symptoms and they were questioning, like they thought that it was just about them, right? Because no one was really talking about it. No one was explaining to them that this is normal. And so I think, especially because they were brand new, right, they were then questioning, is, is this really the right fit for me? Am I really cut out for this, right? Because there's also this culture, I think in a lot of these professions of kind of a suck it up culture, right? Like, I got through it, you can get through it. And so just normalizing it for people in and of itself, I think, can be at least a relief to folks so they don't think that there's something wrong with them, But ideally, that would then be paired with, okay, well, what are effective ways to manage it? So at minimum, again, even if you can't provide any sort of extra resources whatsoever, at least having conversations with newly trained staff to let them know this is these are normal reactions to abnormal events, right? Your average person does not hear 20 stories of horrible things that happen to people every single day as part of their work. Like that's just not like your average person's work. So it is normal to have these sorts of reactions. It, it's not a reflection on like your ability as a, as a lawyer. Now, certainly if you're somebody who breaks down into tears every time they hear a hard story, then maybe you do have to think about, is this the right place for me? Because, right. 
you know, and so, you know, different, obviously people have different personalities and different abilities to kind of cope with, with this sort of thing. But I think for your average person, just at minimum, as I said, like normalizing that everybody kind of feels this way. And so at least you can kind of talk to your peers about it. At least you can kind of feel some sort of, uh, I don't know if camaraderie is the right word, but, you know, again, at least not feel like there's something wrong with you um, and that this is a reflection on your work performance. Because I do think that that's kind of where people go naturally. And and because it's not openly discussed, right, if something's not openly discussed, there's kind of this implicit message that you shouldn't talk about it. Often unintended, I think. But, you know, again, if no one's asking you about it, you're not going to volunteer it. And so I think, again, for for folks that are hiring new lawyers, uh, again, normalizing these sorts of conversations can just in and of itself be quite helpful. Yeah. And I think that this exists in other professions, too. But I think about there's young medical students that I know and they talk about they they do get some training, but it's more about um, like keep your emotions in check, focus on the thing at hand. If you need to, you're a mandatory reporter. So if that's an issue, you do that. But you've got to, you know, fix the thing right in front of you. And so you used the phrase compassion fatigue earlier um, when someone, but I've also heard it used when someone seems to have become jaded over time from their work. Is it possible and healthy to strike a balance between caring too much, you went into the profession because you want to help versus becoming numb to the trauma uh, experienced by others? Like where's the, where's the happy middle? Right. No. And I think that's a really important point, right? Because you do see people who've been in the field a long time and you're like, oh my gosh, like you need to get another job Mm -hmm. (laughs) because like you're not helping anybody anymore, right? Because they are so shut down or they are so jaded. And so, yes, I think that is like the other extreme and that's not, that's not kind of good for anybody either. And so, but as you said, on the other hand, like you can't break down and cry in front of your clients, like you Mm -hmm. just can't. So you need to find a way to, to kind of be somewhere in the middle and we can talk if it's helpful about kind of coping strategies, but I think, you know, some people, you know, people have their own natural coping strategies that you just Mm -hmm use in your life. But those sorts of things can also be developed and kind of uh, supported by organizations, both kind of fostering positive coping strategies and trying to like discourage people from using negative coping strategies. And certainly like numbing out is a coping strategy, but it's, I wouldn't say it's very, it's not really helping Mm -hmm. you or your clients in the long run. But we do have to, I mean, I think the nature of the work Again, it, this is just an inherent challenge. And I, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners who, you know, particularly work in, in these kinds of fields have had similar experiences that I have, which is when someone asks you, well, what do you do for your job? And you say, oh, I work with, you know, in child maltreatment or child welfare or whatever it is. And they say, mm-hmm. oh, like, that's so, that's so great. And you're like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I do think it's great. I mean, I think it's important. Right. And they kind of see it as this like noble thing or, but like, they don't really like either there's kind of a curiosity about it or, um, but I think, I think that, I think that's a, no, but it's a normal reaction because when I hear that, I think, you know, God bless you because, you know, I'm not having to do that. Someone's got to do that hard work. So it's so great that you are willing to put yourself in that place and do that hard work. I completely understand that reaction, although yeah, when you say it like that, it it, it sounds awkward. But I think that you also kind of touched on the point that talking about it, we found that in the mental health issues, uh, Dr. Larry Krieger is an attorney, or he's an attorney and a professor at FSU Law. And I talked to so many of his students who said, he told us when we were students, guess what? It's going to, it's going to be terrible hours. People are going to make you think that you just have to stick it out and you'll be happy later because when you're making big money, you'll be happy later. And he said, that's all a lie. You need to prepare yourself now. Don't drink too much. Get enough exercise. Talk about it. And so being aware of the problem before you walk in the door is almost an immunization uh, because you're, you know, it's it's like a heads up, look for it now because it's coming and then it doesn't take you off guard. Like, Yeah, I think the challenge is that one of the things that trauma exposure can do is really 
limit or erode your your kind of emotional awareness because you're in this kind of survival mode. And the lack of, so you're not even aware that you're kind of having these reactions, right? You don't see it because, you know, it's, it's not like you go from being fine one day to being heavily impacted the next day. I mean, this is presumably some sort of gradual process over time, accumulative process over time. And you're often, I think, not aware of how much it's affected you until somebody, you know, maybe a friend or a coworker says, hey, you know, like, have you been sleeping like, or you know, some sort of thing that yeah. kind of makes you check in with yourself. And I do think that's another important strategy is to have some sort of like intentional checking in with your, your emotional well-being and just like how attuned are you to, to how you're doing? Because again, the nature of the work is like, it, it certainly doesn't encourage that. Um, and on top of the, the content of the work, again, there's like the volume of the work and there's the burnout piece of like, if you're working till seven, eight, nine o'clock every night, like what is your chance to check in with yourself? You're just, again, you're just in kind of automatic pilot and, and in survival mode to some extent. And so I think it, it makes it all the harder. I think it's important that you talk about checking in with your own emotions and, and maybe even with others on how they perceive your character and your behavior because a lot of lawyers and judges believe that they're the masters of compartmentalizing their work from their personal lives. But if someone is suffering from secondary trauma, doesn't it often also just spill over and impact their home life even if they're not aware of it because according to them, you know, work is work and home is home? Right. It definitely can. You know, when you were talking about um, vicarious trauma earlier, it reminded me of like a example that I often use in training, which is, you know, for your average person, if you're in a park and you see a man and a little girl holding hands, you think like, oh, that's so sweet. Like the father's taking his daughter to the park. And if you work in our professions, you look at that pair of people and you are worried for that girl's safety. Right. Because your mind goes to, I know all the situations where like that is a bad thing. Your average person doesn't think that way. Right. And, and so that sort of, certainly that sort of change can definitely impact your personal life. Right. Because maybe you stop sending your kids to other families' houses. Right. Um, you don't let them sleep over at another family's house, for example, because you're like, I know what happens when kids go to strangers' houses, even if you know that family or, you know, you might be, you know, in terms of your friendships or your, your spouse or partner, you might kind of your interactions with that person might be much more stressed. You might be having nightmares and not sleeping well, which is not going to help anybody in terms of just like managing life stress. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that for sure it can, it can kind of leak into your personal life. In addition is that I think, again, these are sorts of jobs where it is often very hard to kind of have this like strict delineation between now I'm at work, now I'm at home, especially with, you know, we're all working from home. It's like, when are we not at work, right? You're getting emails until eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. I know certainly people in child welfare, it's like, I was talking with someone this week on a project that I'm working on. And they say, well, in this office, like the expectation is that they're on call 24 seven, the supervisors. And I was like, well, so how is that tenable? Like, how can anybody be yeah, on call 24 yeah. seven? Like that's not physically possible. Um, what are, they, are they sleeping with their phones under their pillows? Like I, you know, it's an unrealistic expectation, but it is the nature of the work at times. I mean, I think, again, there's something that organizations can do to to help create some delineation because for sure emergencies come up but there are lots of things that could wait until the next morning but people again get in the habit of you know well it's eight o'clock at night and i'm sitting with my laptop and so i'm going to send that email and my expectation is that someone's going to be there to read it before they get into work the next day so i think you know again there's there's things that organizations can do to to be protective and to help people have those mental breaks because that is really important um both in terms of the kind of again the trauma exposure piece but also in terms of the burnout piece so if i work in a field that regularly exposes me to the trauma of others 
what should I personally be looking for to determine if I'm experiencing secondary trauma? Like, so I, no one said anything to me yet, but what's happening that I should take a closer look? Yeah. So, um, it's a really good question. I think there's a few different answers to the question. The first I would say is be aware of kind of your personal vulnerability. Um, you talked earlier about, you know, why do people get into the field? Um, sometimes it's based on their personal experiences. Um, certainly in child welfare, we know um, that people who get into social work on average have more traumatic events in their past than people who go into business, for example. And those events um, can often be very motivating and kind of positive in the sense of it's, you know, the reason why someone wants to give back. It's a source of connection and empathy with their clients, but it also does increase their personal vulnerability. So I think if you know that you went through something very difficult, um, whether it was the motivation for you to get into the field or not, that's something you need to just kind of remain aware of, right? So that if you have a case that reminds you of that situation for some reason, I would say it's probably more likely that you would develop kind of a strong reaction to that situation. And so I think being aware of those kind of trauma triggers for yourself And also then being aware of like, when I am triggered, so to speak, like, what are the reactions that I typically have? So if we think about the categories of traumatic stress reactions, again, the kind of the list for secondary trauma and the list for primary trauma are essentially the same. So we talk about avoidance. So kind of actively avoiding reminders of an event. So in a workplace context, this could look like not returning emails, not returning phone calls, showing up late to meetings, not writing detailed notes about a particular case because the content, you're kind of avoiding the content. And I think for all of these, let me just say as a bit of a side, these can all look like performance issues. And so I think for people who are more in like supervisory or management positions, it's helpful to keep in mind that, well, this person coming in late may be coming in late and we have to deal with that as a performance issue, or they may be having this kind of trauma reaction. And the response to that, the effective response to that would presumably be very different. So avoidance is kind of one cluster of symptoms. Another is kind of re-experiencing or intrusive thoughts. So this is when people are having kind of nightmares, reminders, flashbacks related to, Um, again, either their personal experience and or the experiences that they've heard about from others. Um, Another cluster is um, what we call hyperarousal. So this is kind of uh, being hypervigilant, right? So always on edge, scanning the environment. You know, we talk about uh, the kind of classic example is, you know, a, a military veteran driving down the street and hearing a car backfire and thinking that is gunfire, right? But for us who are not in a military context, you can still be in that kind of hypervigilant state. So that I think can, you asked earlier about how does this impact your personal life, that can play out in personal relationships, right? If you are kind of on edge, argumentative, kind of ready to pounce, because again, your body is preparing for that danger that you're anticipating. Certainly you can have difficulty concentrating, kind of again, be in this like fight or flight mode almost all the time. And then another kind of, again, cluster of symptoms is, which is pretty broad, uh, kind of negative changes in cognition or mood. So are you isolating yourself more than usual? Um, You know, typically you would go out to lunch with your coworkers once a week, and now you're saying, oh no, I have to stay at my desk and do my work. Uh, Do you have decreased interest in regular activities? Have you developed this kind of negative lens, um, not just on your own work, but kind of more broadly, potentially affecting your worldview? So I think keeping those things in mind and, and kind of knowing, well, where do I go, right? When I'm reminded of X, where do I tend to go um, mentally and emotionally? I think that can also be really helpful, again, in kind of anticipating what do I need to look out for? Because I know when I stop returning phone calls, as an example, that's a sign to me that I need to understand and kind of unpack what's happening and maybe get some support for it. You know, I think also, again, I think it depends on your work situation, but 
if you're in a situation where you have supervision of some sort, or you are, again, a supervisor or administrator, I think, again, being attuned to those kinds of changes in your staff is also really important. And, and again, like being very transparent, you know, educating people about these things. So it's not like a gotcha thing, like, oh, now you're in trouble, but it's providing this information to people and kind of saying, we're going to check in about this stuff because in order for you to do your job well, we need to make sure that you are kind of healthy and whole. And certainly if you have the ability, whether it's with a colleague um, at work or a friend or resource outside of work to do some sort of regular check-in, I think that can be really helpful as well. There's also a host of free kind of assessment tools that you could find online where you can, I, I know people who, you know, every other month or so, they fill out one of these tools to see how have things shifted for me? Because again, when things do kind of start shifting, your emotional awareness may be decreasing. And so you may not even be aware of it until you kind of take this inventory, um, do the screening tool, you know, a few months down the line and your score is way different than it had been. Those are just a handful of, you know, ways that I think people can kind of try to stay on top of what their own experience is and what are the red flags that indicate that they need to really take a look at what's happening and and get some source of support. And so we've talked about individuals that perhaps are predisposed to being more impacted. And, and it seems like almost all roads lead to awareness, you know, being aware that secondary trauma is a thing, uh, normalizing, talking about secondary trauma and, and being aware of our own traumas and our own reactions to those traumas. So again, all roads seem to lead to awareness. But And, and we've also talked about things people can do to alleviate all those symptoms. But I feel like every one of the points we've discussed kind of bears repeating. So as far as predisposition, you briefly mentioned earlier people who perhaps experience trauma themselves. So can you maybe expand on that a little bit? And your experiences, who who are the people that are more predisposed or impacted when exposed to secondary trauma? Sure. I mean, that's in a way a hard question to answer. I mean, I think what the what the literature tells us is that again, your your personal history of trauma, your kind of coping strategies. So somebody who copes by denying what's happening, or just like kind of negatively venting, or going out and drinking after work, right? Um, these things that are things that can be like helpful in the very very short term. Um, right. I had a difficult day. I'm going to go out with my colleagues and, and have a few drinks. But if you're doing that repeatedly, right, it's it's not kind of helping anybody again. And I think there's there's also the question of what is your workload like? Um, and I think it this will be different depending on organizations. But, you know, if you're in um, a firm where, you know, not all the case. So say. I'm going to make up a scenario, but for a particular person, the sex abuse case is particularly triggering. Maybe they have a sex abuse history themselves or they had a friend or whatever the situation is. Right. Maybe there's a way to have like a rotation so that it's not all one person getting assigned the same difficult cases. I, I certainly know of situations or I've known situations in the past. This is challenging where it's like, oh, this person is really good at handling these kinds of cases, right? So we're going to like give them all of them, right? So kind of the better you are, the more exposed you end up being. Um, But that's not helpful for that person, right? So kind of spreading the load and trying to kind of be mindful of, again, like the amount of exposure. I think, again, there's also things, this isn't so much a personal characteristic, but again, just thinking about how things are organizationally, you know, there are things that we can do in organizations to decrease trauma exposure. So again, I'm I'm kind of speaking to the child welfare context. You guys can tell me how much this is relevant in the legal context. But, you know, I often have known of situations where, well, we have um, group meetings and everybody talks about all their cases, okay. right? And so then like everybody's exposed to everybody's traumatic material, Now, there's value, there's kind of teaching value in doing that, but 
you have to think of the flip side, which is, you know, again, you're just, you've just increased everybody's trauma exposure, as I said a minute ago. So is there a way to do that where you're not necessarily sharing all the details? And I think even like, particularly when you work in a field of like ours, where you can't go home and talk about work, right? Because so much of this is confidential. Like the people you talk about it with are your colleagues. And so I think they're can often be these kind of culture of like, you know, sharing stories and almost as like, I don't mean this in a negative way, but like kind of one-upping each other around, oh, you think that's terrible. Like, let me tell you about this, this story. And, and, and again, I think it, it feels good in the moment. It's kind of this like bonding and, and kind of mutual support. But again, it, it, I think it can take a toll over time, you know, in terms of other kind of individual characteristics, I think, your comfort in seeking out support, again, I think some people just either because of the workplace that they're in where this is not really encouraged or just like their their personality or their upbringing or whatever it is, right? They're just not somebody who wants to kind of share this stuff with other people. They feel like, oh, I don't want to burden anybody else or, um, you know, I signed up for this. And so some people I think are more comfortable recognizing like, I really, I really need help with this. But I think for folks who are maybe tend to be like more stoic or kind of suck it up type of folks there, they maybe don't get the the help that they need early on. And it's, it's more likely to, to progress over time. Another individual characteristic that I think is important for people to kind of reflect on is not just your personal experience of trauma, but kind of your community's experience of trauma whether that is, you know, kind of a physical community where maybe there's a lack of safety or kind of intergenerational trauma in terms of, you know, broader issues like bias, discrimination, slavery, immigration issues. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's lots of people come from families and communities where there are what we call kind of historical trauma that is kind of handed down through families, through communities, and particularly at a time where I think we are, there's kind of a heightened recognition of racial justice issues and how those play out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to kind of keep in mind that it's, you know, again, that you don't have to necessarily have experienced something personally to be impacted by something that has impacted kind of your broader family and community. And that that can also play out very much, right? Again, you might be reminded of, by the nature of your work, you might be reminded of some of the stories that you've heard, or you might, I mean, we even know that trauma can literally be passed down epigenetically Mm -hmm. from parent to child. So you can just have a predisposition that way because of your parents' trauma experiences, even if you personally did not go through those events. And so you know, again, I think it's important for people to take both kind of a, a micro and a macro look at the potentially contributing factors. I think the challenge is, is that obviously you can't do anything about what your personal trauma history was or what your family's trauma history was. Um, those aren't things that you can change. What can help to change is kind of having that awareness, having that understanding and kind of bringing that to your work and to an effective response to what you're experiencing now. And if if an individual knows that they have that history, is it even more important for them? Can you heal that trauma? Can you go, is it important to go get counseling maybe before you even plunge into this career? I mean, it's a good question. I think it there, it's such an individual thing, mm-hmm. um, right? I mean, again, for some people, their family's experiences or their community's experiences can be part of the motivating factor for them to get into seeking justice and that being a noble profession. I mean, so I think, again, those things can be a great source of strength and motivation and kind of staying connected to, you know, why did you get into this work? Um, But again, I think it's also important to recognize it is, it is a point of vulnerability, a potential point of vulnerability as well. Again, I think also from like an organizational perspective, it's also important to keep these things in mind, right? That like your law firm doesn't exist in a bubble, but your law firm exists within a society that has gone through a lot over the past, you know, four or five, six, seven, however many years, particularly this last year with the epidemic. I mean, there's so Mm -hmm. much that's been going on that have been, you know, kind of stressor upon stressor for people. 
And so, again, to remember that people don't leave those lives behind when they walk through the door in the morning, right? They're bringing themselves to work. And, you know, for sure, as we said before, like, you need to find a way to do some compartmentalization. Otherwise, we wouldn't normally be able to get through the day. But you want to do it in a way that is functional rather than kind of maladaptive and kind of creating some of the um, the problems that we spoke about earlier. And I like that you pointed out that it's the whole organization, not just the front line, because the organization is more than the sum of its parts. And I think everyone is bringing something to work with them now, especially post-COVID, if we are post-COVID. But no, it's a new layer. Everybody has something going on. So I think making sure that it, the universal training and addressing the issue with every part of your organization is so important. And I think you make a good point because sometimes saying it out loud is relieving and you can't go home and say these things to your family. It would melt their face off because they don't work in this line of work. Um, and I think that applies, you know, to a lot of professions. So you, you share those um, war stories with your coworkers right. and, and, but you're right. If you go into the grizzly, grizzly details of your case, now they're carrying it too. So I think that there's a, there's a way to normalize talking about it, but maybe in a way that you pivot, you're like, that sounds awful. How are you doing is this, you know, are you sleeping? Gosh, that must be taking a toll on you. So you can, you could continue to still talk about it because you need to talk about it, but pivot it into a more healthy way. Um, and I know that it's common for people who work with victims of trauma to suggest that the victim go for counseling, but then the person telling the victim that they're reluctant to seek help for themselves. So how do you bring this up with people that are doing these difficult jobs? How do you remind them gently, you you might need some professional help. Is that something, is that a position that you or your coworkers are put in regularly? And is it, that's, a, I would think it's a positive thing to always say, hey, I, you might be at that point. Let's talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, getting that support from colleagues, one thing that I would just to, to kind of add to what I said before and reflecting on a point that you just made is even if you are going to share like ask someone's permission to do that okay? because it just might not be the right day for them right. to hear one more story. Right. But if you say, Hey, you know, I really like, I had this horrible thing. Like, do you have a few minutes to talk about it and to be okay if they say, you know what, this isn't like, I, I'm not in the mind space to do this with you today. Maybe they wouldn't say it exactly that way, but you know, it just to, to kind of have permission to ask for permission and to be in the position of giving permission to again, to kind of be exposed um, to that traumatic content and to maybe help you work through it, um, I think is important because it does, again, kind of restore some agency so that someone's just not in the position, again, of being flooded, kind of whether they want to be or not. In terms of encouraging people to get support, you know, I listened to the podcast that you guys had on the, the new helpline that you have. I mean, I think, I don't know, uh, where that stands and how many people are utilizing it. But I think normalizing resources like that, um, encouraging people to use them. And certainly it seems like the way that it's been set up within the Florida bar where, you know, it's completely anonymous. There's no diagnosis. There's no, it, it can't get connected back to you. I think is really important, you know, in a lot of organizations, they have EAPs, but I think people often perceive them as part of, punishment, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, there has been a performance issue. And as part of your like performance improvement plan, we're sending you to the EAP. <laughs> I've been in the position of having to do that, I will say, which is very, very challenging. And so people, I think, are reluctant to seek it out themselves, because it's not seen as, as something that's supportive. It's seen as part of kind of a, a punitive action. Um, and also it's like the whole issue of, you know, well, I have to take time off of work and I have to, where am I going to say I'm going and, right. you know, all those issues in terms of like wanting to keep something confidential, I think comes up as well. So to the extent that these things, again, can be normalized. And even if like someone, again, in a management position can talk about their experience seeking out support, or maybe they bring, I mean, I certainly have known of organizations that bring somebody in like once a month for an open session that kind of anyone who wants to go can go to this session. And again, nothing is reported back to management. No case details are kind of shared because I think people are also then concerned about if I say something that does reflect poorly on my job performance, am I going to get in trouble for it? And so there's that, there's that concern as well. 
the extent to which, again, those sorts of things can be normalized, encouraged, brought into the into the workplace when possible. You know, it's a culture shift for sure. And I would imagine, you know, maybe in kind of a public defender's office, there would be more sensitivity to this sort of thing than in like a more corporate right. setting. And maybe yeah. I'm being stereotypical in terms of how I'm thinking about it. But even if you think of like a corporate office, corporate legal situation where people do pro bono work, say, and so they get a case now and again that is very much out of the norm from what they usually do. Like the culture in their office may be very different and like doesn't feel as open to kind of recognizing that that can have an emotional impact on people versus in maybe an office where maybe there's also social workers working there. I know in, in our legal aid offices here in the city, you know, they have both legal staff and social work staff. So I would imagine kind of the culture is maybe just naturally a little bit different. We know that we have to be very serious about respecting their need for anonymity. Um, we've also made some great strides uh, in the last few years because we had several very prominent attorneys um, stand up at our annual convention and even do uh, recorded CLEs for us. And they said, I see a therapist. I take medication. And guess what? It doesn't make me, this isn't a weakness. It makes, it's a strength. I've never been better. I'm at the top of my game now. I'm a better husband or wife. I'm a better dad. And I'm a better attorney because I manage these things. And our Young Lawyers Division did a series of videos called um, Stigma Free YLD. Uh, speaking about all different struggles that different attorneys have had. And people rallied around them. They loved them. That got a tremendous reaction. And so we're really working on, you know, destigmatizing the whole issue. And I like that you brought up that you can, the, the little, where you can check in with yourself with these surveys. So in the American Bar Association article that led us to you called Understanding Secondary Trauma, a Guide for Lawyers Working with Child Victims, and Carla will put the link up under the podcast for people to find that. It mentions that there are free assessment tools to see if you could be developing secondary trauma. And those links were out of date, but I found a secondary traumatic stress scale from San Diego State University that you can take in the privacy of your home or office. You, you It's real. There's 17 statements. You just kind of mark your reaction to each one. You score it and it just kind of tells you, you know, on that spectrum where you are. So, and I hope everyone will use the link because I also posted another one for Procol.org, yeah, P-R-O-K, yes. And they have, I love this so much. This is my favorite thing. There's a pocket card. So you print it out, you cut it out and you stick it in your purse or your wallet. And it's entitled Caring for Yourself in the Face of Difficult Work. So I love when anything can be shrunk down to something yeah. that's, it's really helpful and it's tiny. So it's the front side says, 10 things to do each day. And they're very basic things to make sure you're staying healthy. And then the backside says, focusing your empathy. And there's a subtitle that says, how to become better at switching between work and off work modes. And I I thought this is genius. I wish I'd found this before. So um, I want to let everyone know about that. But if our listeners want to learn more about the work that you are doing, Dr. Tolberg, where can they find those resources? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Let me just say before answering that question, actually, uh-huh. one other thing about the ProQual that, okay. um, and I will say, you know, again, there's a variety of these sorts of screening tools. Mm-hmm. None of them are perfect. Right. Um, some of the questions are like awkwardly phrased. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, so just to put that out there, one thing that, that, that said I do, and I think several colleagues of mine really do like about the ProQual is that it doesn't only have questions that are related to secondary trauma, but it has questions related to burnout. And then it has questions related to compassion satisfaction. Ah. Um, and, you know, you talked again at the beginning about why do people get into the field and they kind of have sometimes have the sense of, you know, giving back or, you know, higher purpose. And we do know from the research that people's compassion satisfaction, which is basically kind of getting something out of doing your job, right? Getting something positive out of doing your job, feeling like you're making a difference. If you have high levels of compassion satisfaction, that can really be a buffer against high levels of secondary trauma and really kind of help to mitigate the development um, or exacerbation of those symptoms. And so I think, again, the ProQual allows you to kind of quantify that. Like, are you still tuned in to those reasons that you got into the work? Are you still getting that kind of personal satisfaction out of the work? And if you're not, like, again, what are things that you can do personally, or maybe that you can do in your organization to really foster that among people? So I think one of the things in in one of the 
projects that I did when I worked for the city around this, the child protective staff training that I referenced earlier is, you know, address the fact that, again, we develop this kind of negative lens in the work. And I think that's that's caused by trauma for sure. And it's exacerbated by the nature of our work, which is focused on the things that did or could go wrong, right? Because the stakes for things going wrong are so high, right? In child welfare, the stakes for things going wrong is a child could be killed. And so the focus is, you know, so often on the negative and there's really like a, a skipping over of all the positive. And I remember when we were first doing that project and the facilitators with new staff and asked people to go around and say one good thing that had happened that week. And most people couldn't say a single thing. Oh, no. Because they're like, all I've been told is all the things I did. No, these are new staff, right? So they're in that like training mode anyway. But all I've been told are all the things that I did wrong this week, right? And as the weeks went on with this group, people actually started first to recognize things that other people did, right? So, oh, I saw how you talked to that kid, or I saw you how you talked with that mom or whatever it was. And like, I was really impressed with X, Y, Z, right? We're much better at recognizing good things in other people than we are recognizing good things in ourselves. I just think in general, not just specific to this topic, but so having that positive feedback from each other gradually got people to then recognize kind of the good stuff that they were doing in themselves. And so I think, again, for organizations, as much as, again, we have to be focused on kind of the, the mistakes and the misses and the bad outcomes, we want to also balance it with recognizing all the positive stuff that people are doing whether you achieve the outcome that you wanted to or not with a particular case, right? Because just because a case turned out differently than what you were hoping doesn't mean that you didn't do good work, doesn't mean that you didn't provide some help to that client. If for no other reason that you were someone fighting for them, right? And they don't, they don't have a life where there's a lot of people around them um, that are, are playing that role. Um, so I think that, um, the pro qual, going back to where we started with all of this, kind of can help you stay in tuned with that piece of the work on an individual level. And then again, I think organizationally, it's something that is important for organizations to really think about is like, how, how do we keep that balance? How do we um, recognize the positive things that are happening? Because again, it can really be an important buffer to all the trauma that people are exposed to. That's an excellent point to make sure you're celebrating the wins that yeah. connect you to so the higher. Yeah, I said, I forget what mm-hmm. your actual question was. Oh, where, where can our listeners um, see some of what uh, your research and what, what you have going oh, on? Oh, gosh. So I, I mean, so there are a number of articles that um, I've written on this topic that I can certainly provide to you guys. The intervention that I've Referenced several times around um, child protective staff, which has been adapted in other settings, um, is called the Resilience Alliance, and that those materials are available on the National Child Traumatic Stress Network's website. I can certainly provide that link to you guys. Excellent. And there's work that a lot, you know, many colleagues of mine are doing. If you go to the um, National Child Traumatic Stress Network or NCTSN's website, there's a whole section on secondary trauma that has a, a lot of resources, including, I believe there's a link there to kind of an organizational assessment tool oh, great. Um, where organizations can do kind of an assessment looking at secondary trauma and, and how their organization is managing it. So that's that can be a good resource for those of your listeners who are looking to kind of look at this issue in, on more of an organizational level. Thank you so much. It looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you, Dr. Erica Tolberg, for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I also want to remind all of our members and Florida registered paralegals that the Florida Bar has a confidential helpline that Dr. Tolberg referenced earlier that you can call. You can be referred for three in-person or teletherapy sessions at no cost to you. It's operated by a third party. The bar will never know if you call. And I want to give that number 833 351-9355. Again, 833-351-9355. 
9355. You can also visit the Bars Health and Wellness Center webpage for other resources, and we will post links to all of the resources we have mentioned under the podcast player. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bars Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.